let's pray together. God, we just sang there that you are our Redeemer. And this morning as we open your word, we find that that is true, that you redeemed one man, a demoniac, and you redeem each one of us who have lived for our own passions, our own desires. You've called us into your kingdom, and now we celebrate you and your resurrection power and what you accomplished not only 2,000 years ago, but ever since then, uh, you have continued that accomplishment, and we see it lived out day after day in the lives of those who love you. And so we thank you this morning. I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word as we open it together. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, where we're going to pick up our study from a few weeks ago. We pause for a minute to uh, look at Easter, and now we'll return to this Gospel. But as you're turning there, I want to make mention of an anniversary that occurred yesterday, uh, one rightly without fanfare, but important nonetheless. Uh, yesterday was my nine-year anniversary of serving as your pastor uh, here at Bethel. Thank you. A, a lot has changed uh, over those nine years, and yet a lot has remained the same. We've seen a lot of new faces uh, here in the last nine years. We've had a lot of new members, a lot of new children. Uh, we've had some new staff members. We've had some new elders and we've had new deacons. And, and those kinds of changes uh, bring excitement and bring a lot of energy. But there are some things that have not changed uh, in those nine years. We still preach the word of God every Sunday morning. We still stand on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we still maintain a commitment uh, to make disciples and to take the good news of Jesus to our community and to our world. Those things are unchanging, and that's a good thing. So anniversaries come and go, and, of course, over time, pastors come and go. Um, but for the opportunity that God has given me for these last nine years, I have loved it, and I love you, and I'm so grateful to be able to be here and to serve uh, here at Bethel. So thank you uh, for having me here. If you have your Bibles, let's get to the important stuff now, okay? Uh, let's go to Luke chapter 8, and starting in verse 26, I'm going to read down through verse 29. Luke records these words for us. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him, he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. 
And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming through the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. We'll stop there for this morning. Passages like these that deal with the demonic world tend to attract a great deal of curiosity. That's in part because while scripture affirms the reality and the truthfulness of the supernatural world, the supernatural world is beyond our human eyesight. We can't see it, and because we can't see it, we often wonder What is that like? Rest assured, the presence of angels and demons in our world is very real. But we're not to be fearful of those things. And in fact, that is exactly why passages like this are recorded in the Bible. But we should be aware of their reality and of their influence on world events. So I'm going to walk through this passage this morning a little bit different than is customary for me. Typically, as I work through a passage of scripture, as we're going through it, I'm making application uh, to your life, uh, verse by verse. Today, what I want to do, I would like to go through the historical account as it's recorded by Luke, but without a lot of application until the end. And then at the end, what I want to do is show you how these things play out today in society as a whole, as well as how they play out for you personally. I think that will be very helpful for you and especially encouraging uh, as you as we'll end with this reminder, Jesus conquers all for his glory. Okay, so that's where we'll end. Jesus conquers all. For his glory. So let's, let's look at this uh, together. If you were with us the last time we were in Luke, which was now three weeks ago, I believe, uh, you'll recall that Jesus has calmed a storm on the way to this country of the Gerasenes. They've crossed over the Sea of Galilee. The storm was there. And now they've landed on the other side. This location where they anchor is opposite Galilee, according to Luke. And while the location is not 
exactly known, not the exact spot. We do know that it's in the, the midst of the Decapolis, which means ten cities, Deca, ten polis city, Deca, polis. So ten cities is the region where they land. We don't know the exact spot, but what we do know for sure is that this is Gentile territory. Well, how do we know that? Well, because there's pigs there. (laughs) Pigs don't live among the Jews. Pigs were considered unclean and despised. A Jew never touched a pig. A Jew never raised a pig. And for certain, a Jew would never eat a pig. Jewish law in Leviticus 11 and again in Deuteronomy 14 forbid the consumption of pork. And so we know for sure that we are in Gentile territory and there are Gentiles on the scene, which, by the way, for you and I, that should bring us great delight because we are not ethnic Jews. And so the fact that Jesus would go to the Gentiles tells us that he intended for his kingdom to be open for all, all people groups, including you and I. And so I'm very glad he went to this Gentile region. But notice that no more than stepping out of the boat, here comes this crazed man running toward Jesus. Matthew tells us that there are actually two uh, demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, but apparently one does all of the talking, and that's the one that Luke records for us here. There's several details that we notice about this guy. Look at verse 27 again. It says, This man came from the city. He had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs, if you skip down to the end of verse 29, there's this parenthetical insert, and it says many times he had been seized, he was kept under guard, with bound, uh, bound in chains and shackles, but he would break those, and he would be driven by the demon into the desert. Okay, so notice uh, several things about this man. Number one, he was from the city. We're not told which city specifically, but he used to have a residence there. In fact, after this man is healed, Jesus commands him in verse 39, return to your home. Presumably, he had a family back there. Maybe he had a wife. Maybe he had children. Maybe he had a mom and dad who were still alive. And I wonder how all of those people back there in the city that knew him, that were related to him, explained to their neighbors and friends where this man was at. I wonder when they got together for their holiday gatherings and all the extended family was there, if there was this hush whisper about what's going on with so-and-so. I wonder among his family if if he was ever talked about or if it was just the big elephant in the room that everybody knew but no one mentioned because we just want to have a good time today. Notice too that this demoniac wore no clothes. 
It wasn't that he didn't want to. It was that the demon wouldn't allow him to. Now, I wouldn't recommend this, um, but if you ever go down to Siesta Beach and you observe one of those old guys who barely has anything on, you ever notice anything about that person besides the fact that he needs to put more clothes on? He's ridiculously tan, right? In fact, he's so tan that his body, his skin, almost looks rubbery. That deep, dark brown. And you think to yourself, man, that guy's been in the sun a lot. I kind of had pictured that's how this guy looked. That deep, dark rubbery, you can't be outside naked for long periods of time in an arid climate like Israel without getting extremely dark. Moreover, this demon would drive this man into the desert. And certainly in the desert, that sun is going to bake you there. I think that this man has long passed the sun tan stage and has entered into the sun burnt stage, that stage with blisters and all the accompanying pain. He lives among the tombs here in this region, which means from time to time, a family is going to show up at that place to bury their loved one in that cemetery. Can you imagine the terror running through your mind as you load up your caravan to go to that cemetery? (laughs) You don't know where that guy is hiding. You don't know from where he might jump out. You don't know if he's going to be fleeing, if he's going to be screaming, if he's going to be bleeding, if he's going to be attacking, if he's going to be cursing, or all of the above. So you keep your kids really close to you because this is not a safe space to go in. Apparently, the townspeople have tried to their own might to rectify the situation, but to no avail. They've captured this guy before, They bound him up with chains and shackles and then they would put him under some kind of security surveillance, but nothing worked. So powerful were the demons within him that nothing outside of him could ever control him. He would burst through the restraints and take off screaming again to the tombs. Luke doesn't mention it here in this passage, but Mark, in his account of what's happening here, says this in Mark chapter 5, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This man is a bloody mess. No sooner would one gash heal that he would cut open another one and blood would spew out on him and on the stones that he used. I suppose that the herdsmen that aren't very far away are always keeping their eye out on this cemetery. And I wonder sometimes when the herdsmen look over there, they see these two men darting between the tombs. 
And they are reminded once again, don't get too close. You might die and always, always sleep with one eye open. When Jesus steps out of the boat, this man comes charging. I wonder what the disciples thought when this bloodied, darkened, naked, screaming, out-of-control man comes running down the slopes of the mountain. And he gets all the way down there. He gets to the feet of Jesus. He sees Jesus and immediately... The demon within him recognizes who he's encountering and he falls down and he screams with this loud voice, what have you to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God. This demon knows with absolute certainty whom it is who stands in front of him. And to be honest... That's more than what the disciples could answer the night before when they were in the boat. Do you remember when when they were in the boat? This demon is solving the question that they posed back in verse 25 when they said, Who then is this who commands even the winds and water and they obey him? Who then is this? This is Jesus Son of the Most High God. That is the unmistakable truth in the mind of this demon. Hear me now. Demons have faith. It's just not a saving faith. They know exactly who Jesus is. They know exactly from where Jesus comes. Trust me, they know his exalted power. They know his position and they shudder. But they also reject him for their salvation. But one thing that they do believe, they do believe in his supreme power to do whatever he wants to do, including torturing them. Look look at how this demon starts begging Jesus. He said, I beg you, do not torment me. If you go back and you look at that little word torment, it has lots of different meanings, but one of the meanings of that word torment is to toss about. Jesus can literally take a demon and just toss him about, and there's nothing he can do about it. That's the intensity of the power that he has. And so when this demon looks at Jesus, he is scared to death, literally. There is no power greater in all of the universe than the power that resides in the Most High God. And all of that power of the Most High God is present in Jesus because he is a member of the Godhead. That demon knows it. Jesus has control over him, even though the townspeople did not. And the only thing that the demon can do is submit to whatever Jesus says. Verse 30, Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. This is the only incident in all of the Gospels 
where Jesus converses with a demon. And he asks him a simple question. What is your name? The demon's reply is, my name is Legion. Well, Legion is a Latin term that denotes an army of about 6,000 Roman soldiers. Whether or not there were actually 6,000 demons inside this man or whether that was spoken figuratively to make the point that it's a huge number, we don't know for sure. But Mark tells us that when the pigs died, they numbered about 2,000. So do the math. There's a lot of demons inside this man. His name is Legion. And they beg Jesus once again, don't throw us into the abyss. Well, what's the abyss? That's the place of the dead. That's the place that Revelation describes as being reserved for Satan and his demons at the end of time. It's their eternal prison where they will be punished by God for their rebellion against him forever and ever and ever. And these demons are afraid that Jesus might send them there ahead of schedule. And so they beg him, Jesus, please, please don't send us to the abyss. And they notice over on the hillside this herd of pigs. And so they they plead with Jesus, just let us go into the pigs. Now, Note something foundationally important here. Demons must request permission from God. They can't do anything outside of the sovereign permission of God. He has absolute control and they have only absolute submission to his authority. There is no such thing in our universe as a cosmic back and forth between equal forces of good and evil. There is no such thing in our universe as some kind of a tussle in which at times God is ahead and at other times Satan is ahead. No, no, no. There is one and only one reality. All things, including Satan and his demonic force, are under the total and sovereign control of the Most High God. God wins. Jesus grants permission. And these demons, however many thousands of them there were, flood into these pigs nearby. And in an unimaginable panic, those pigs do what any animal would do when suddenly occupied by a violent, evil, supernatural being. They go tearing down the hillside off the edge of the cliff to their violent death below. And trust me, that would not have been a quiet 
surreal event. If you've ever been around pigs, you know how loud they can become when they are startled or when they are angered. The squeal of a pig can be absolutely ear-piercing at times. And as they fly down that hillside, the squeal is unimaginable. Besides the noise and besides the chaos, there's a bit of irony in this picture as well. Because the abyss, thought of as a place of the dead, was also thought of as a watery place. That's what it's sometimes called. The abyss was called a watery place. And while these demons pled not to be thrown into the abyss, their ironic and climactic end was drowning in a watery place nonetheless. Now, some people will say, well, that wasn't really fair to these pigs. They didn't deserve to die. Other people would say, yeah, and that's not really fair to these pig owners. They didn't really deserve to have their income destroyed in this way. Well, my only conclusion would be this. Jesus' action here shows the importance of human beings relative to animals. R.C. Sproul writes this in his commentary. He says, The compassion of Jesus drove him to destroy the pigs for the sake of one human life. That is how valuable human life is. The point is, 2,000 pigs dead for one person to live is not even an even trade for our Creator. One lost person saved is worth far more. End quote. Well, these herdsmen, these hired hands who are there, they just go running off in the city. We got to go find the owners. We got to go tell them what happened. So they go running back. They tell the owners what happened. And these owners, and presumably a whole lot more people, come flying back out to this countryside to see what has happened. And when they show up, here are all these carcasses of dead pigs floating everywhere out into this lake nearby. And then they look and they see this demoniac sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, a complete 180. The man is calm. He's got clothes on and he is sane. They've tried to get this man to that point for years. And suddenly it's happened. And that utterly terrifies them. Maybe they were superstitiously scared of Jesus. Maybe it's the loss of their livelihood that agitated them. Maybe the world's riches and the cares of the world were more important to them. At any rate, they reject the greatest opportunity of their lifetime. Instead of welcoming Jesus... They ask him to leave. Instead of bringing themselves and other needy people to Jesus, they expel him. 
Instead of asking him to explain to them who he is and his mission on earth, they tell him to get in your boat and leave. Jesus isn't going to force himself on them. And so he does just that. He gets in the boat to leave. And it's here where you see this previously possessed man running up to Jesus and begging, I want to go with you. Let me go along. But instead of granting that request, Jesus gives this nameless guy a mission. And he says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. I think it's kind of funny that the townspeople ask Jesus to leave, and leave he will, but before he leaves, he commissions a missionary to go back with them and give his testimony. The best kind of missionary, because he was one of them. And out of his own experience, he can talk about the delivering power of Jesus Christ. And we have no idea, and will have no idea, until we get to heaven, who all came to a saving knowledge of Jesus because of this man. Jesus's no to this man's question, can I come along, might have meant hundreds of yeses to this man's later testimony of who Jesus is. Isn't that neat? When we get to heaven one day, we might meet some of these people who say, yeah, I know that guy. Because of his testimony of Jesus, I came to have faith. I want to apply this in a couple ways like I told you earlier that I would. I want to take this and I want to apply this text to our society at large And I want to apply it to you specifically. So first, to our society at large. You must understand something. The world that we live in is not neutral. Jesus said in John 14.30 that Satan is the ruler of this world. And every single person in this world is either a child of God's or a child of the devil. There's no in-between. In fact, before coming to Christ, we were all children of the devil living in rebellion to God. Ephesians 2 states it clearly. You were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, Following the course of this world, and I want you to catch this in here, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I want you to to notice what's happening. Satan is the ruler of this world, at least in a temporal sense, and his spirit, that is his influence, his sway, His determination is now at work in whom? That verse says, in the sons of disobedience. Unbelievers, knowingly or unknowingly, 
are under the influence of Satan in this world. The world that we live in, its systems, its culture, its priority, its morality is under the sway of the demonic. That does not mean that every unbeliever is an active Satan worshiper participating in seances and and blood sacrifices. But what it does mean is that unbelievers are being guided by their own evil desires, desires that Satan loves to exploit in order to destroy the one thing created in the image of God, that is human beings. And some unbelievers are in places of great authority and influences in our world doing the bidding of Satan even if they don't realize it. They are in places of authority that have tremendous cultural impact. Places like entertainment and government and education, media and so forth. And if you are paying any attention at all, you will see how those pillars of society, if under the control of Satan, will attempt to destroy the beauty and the majesty of God's creation. So I want you to look at this account again of the demoniac and you will see what's happening to him is happening now. The evidences of satanic influence, you will see it. First, the demoniac was naked, right? Do you know that Satan constantly wants to expose the nakedness of people? Because it is a direct reversal of what God did in the garden when he clothed Adam and Eve. It's his way of degrading humanity. You watch television shows, you watch movies, if you, if you, if seen pornography, if now the latest thing, drag shows, even super time, uh, super bowl halftime shows are constantly displaying nudity, displaying immoral sexual behavior, this exposure of nakedness, and what was once deemed unthinkable is now demanded to be celebrated. That nakedness that you see is demonically inspired. Secondly, the demoniac used to live in a house, but Satan destroyed that. Demons and Satan want to destroy and separate families, separate community, separate close relationships. Why? Well, again, because it is a reversal of how God created humanity. God created us to live in community, especially in the community of the local church. But Satan comes along and he attacks that. He tries to separate relationships, separate communities. You think about what you hear on the news all the time now. What are the reports that we constantly hear about? How many times have you heard a report about a school teacher or a school administrator who wants to hide information about a student from their parent? 
How many times have you heard of children who are suffering with gender dysphoria or who want to go by a different name or a different pronoun and teachers who are claiming to be the experts and and claiming that they are there to help are telling those children, your parents are toxic and you need to separate from them. I'm safe. They are not. That is nothing short of demonic. Because Satan wants to split families. And you know, here's the thing. I don't think that all of those teachers even know where that's coming from. And I think many of them believe that they're doing the right thing. But they don't know that behind the scenes is an enemy determined to destroy a family. You see it in the demoniac. You see it today. Thirdly, the demoniac lived among the tombs. That's where demons feel the most comfortable. Among the dead and among darkness. How did God intend for humanity to live? In light and in life. But the devil comes along to steal, kill, and destroy. You all were alive last year. You know one of the most monumental decisions handed down by the Supreme Court of our United States, and that was to reverse Roe v. Wade. Didn't end abortion, it pushed it out to the states, but it was a a huge deal. And what has happened since then? Well, some states, states I would argue under the influence of satanic evil are running full force to legalize death, abortion, all the way up to the moment of conce- or the moment of birth why because satan loves death he loves darkness he wants to kill as many humans as possible even before they're born fourth the demoniac cut himself If Satan can't kill a person before they're born, he'll try his best to mutilate them after they're born. Satan hates the human body, a body that's going to be redeemed in the resurrection for the believer. Satan wants to mar the body. He wants to disfigure it. He wants to destroy it. What do you see across the news waves today? People transitioning from one body to another, supposedly. Gender-affirming care, meaning the purposeful and willful destruction of perfectly functioning human organs through the use of chemical castration or the mutilation of reproductive organs. Who do you think is behind such a cruel and evil scheme? Satan loves to disfigure the body. Fifth, the demons would drive this demoniac into the desert, a place of seclusion and loneliness. Well, Satan continues to do that same thing today. He separates people from true community. He separates people from family and friends and he convinces them that they're all alone, that they have no hope, that there is no one who understands. 
And we are seeing this increasingly happening today. And I just got to warn you, and I'm trying to figure this this out as well as a parent. But one of the places that we're seeing it most are in teenagers who are overexposed to social media. And Satan will take something that is good and he will use it for evil. And one of the things that he tries to do when he targets teens and when he targets people is he tries to separate them through the use of their device to the place where they are isolated. They're alone. And they think they have no hope. And then he offers to them the most extreme solution possible to fix their problem. He says, why don't you just kill yourself? And we see suicide rates spiking. I say all of these things not to scare you, but to open your eyes that Satan and his demons are as real today as they were on the shores of Galilee. This world is not neutral. But here's where I want to give you hope. And here's where I want to give you a personal application. You don't have to fear these things because you have Jesus. And as this text demonstrates, Jesus is the great deliverer. He is the source of power over Satan. Notice that these demons could not exist in the same space as Jesus. That truth is still true today. If you have Jesus in your heart, demons cannot occupy that same space. They might be all around. They might be trying to get at you from different angles. But if you have Jesus within you, you have the power of Christ, the power that Satan cannot overcome. And when Jesus rose from the grave two weeks ago, last week, 2,000 years ago, on Easter Sunday morning, that power is the proof that Satan loses. And when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, when you confess with your heart and believe, when you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Christ was raised from the dead, He sends his, Jesus sends his spirit to live in you. You now have that resurrection power. And you can have life. You can have community. You can have hope. You can have true friends. You can have joy. You can have Jesus in the midst of a dark and decaying world. And what's your job now? What's your task? Well, it's just like this formerly possessed man. Your job is to give your testimony. You're called to go and declare into this world how much God has done for you. And every time you share that, Satan has to step back. He hates it when you talk about God. Your light, the light of Jesus Christ within you, drives back his darkness every time you speak of him to your neighbor, to your friend, to your family member, to your co-worker. You expose the darkness. 
Your light shines in. You speak the truth of Jesus and Satan has to flee. And one by one, God plucks people out of that domain of Satan's darkness and he brings them into his place, into his domain, through the testimony of the saints of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you remember what Jesus told Peter back in Matthew 16? He said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Friend, don't give up and don't be discouraged. We know God wins. And at the very end of the book, in the book of Revelation, we're promised that once for all, Jesus conquers the legion and their evil commander. Here's what it says in Revelation 20. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But... Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented, there it is, day and night forever and ever. Their day of torment will come and you with your Lord will stand victorious. That's what you need to remember. Stand with me. Let's pray. God, if we dwelt only on the darkness, if we dwelt only on the evil, and if we didn't know the end of the story, we would feel helpless. But because we know about the resurrection, because we know how this story of redemption ends, how time ends, we can stand victorious because we have Jesus and we have him now. You're calling us now to go into this world just like this demoniac and tell what God has done for us. And through our testimony, the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will continue to save souls like you did ours, like you did those in the Decapolis, and like you will continue to do until you come back. And so I pray that we would not be unaware, that we would not have our heads stuck in the sand, that we would know, we can see what's happening around us. We understand where the evil comes from, but we also understand the power of Jesus Christ, the one to whom the demon had to submit and say, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? God, it is you we worship and we are yours. So help us to hold our heads up high march into battle in this world and give our testimony. And as the gospel goes out, that you would win more and more out of that kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of your light. We pray in Jesus' name.